Turn in your Bibles while we're getting set up here to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. And let me remind you that these lessons that we are studying from the book of Joshua are about real people living real life. And God has recorded these lessons for us. And the more that I study the Old Testament, the more I see that those people were not so different than ourselves. Same temptations, sometimes the same mistakes that we make. Now we've seen sin in the camp with Achan, who stole some things that were under the ban at Jericho. Now we come to compromise in the camp. And so we want to start off with our thesis. Inquiring of the Lord keeps us from being fooled into compromising with the enemy. Have you ever been fooled by appearances? In the 1960s, some people who were in authority, who should not have been fooled, were duped over and over again by a single person, Frank Abagnale. He began as a young man taking his dad's credit card in the state of New York and purchasing things like auto parts, tires, batteries. And then with some dishonest service station attendants, uh, they would sell these things on the black market and split the profits. But he quickly moved on from there to writing bad checks and conning the banks by establishing new identities for himself. And one of the tricks he would use is go to the bank and get some deposit slips, the generic kind, and print his account number on the deposit slip and put some of them back in the stack. And if people weren't noticing carefully, they would just fill it out with the amount, maybe their name, but it would go into his account because it has his account number on it. He was a very observant fella, and he saw things that other people were not looking for. But he went on from there. And this began when he was just a teenager. He forged a Pan American Airlines ID card, got himself a uniform, and flew over 250,000 miles, 250, over a million miles on 250 flights, 26 countries, pretending to be an airline pilot. And wherever he went, he would just uh, build food and lodging to Pan American Airlines. Then, if you could believe this, he impersonated a chief resident pediatrician at a hospital in Georgia. By befriending a neighbor who was a doctor, he became the resident supervisor of interns as a favor to the hospital until they could find someone to take that place permanently. Of course, he didn't do any of the medical procedures. He let the interns do that. And then he moved on from there, forging a Harvard University law transcript and after the third try, passed the bar exam in Louisiana. At age 19, he got a job at the office of the State Attorney General of Louisiana. But there happened to be a real Harvard graduate there. And this guy was always pestering him to find out more about his life during his tenure at Harvard. But he didn't find out. In another scheme, he posed as a Brigham Young College professor. And he was a very creative fellow. He saw things that other people missed. Finally, he was caught in 1969 by an Air France attendant who saw his face on a wanted poster. But uh, when they took him to 
Atlanta to put him in the federal detention center. Well, he escaped one time before they got there, but when he got there, he was able to convince the guys that he was an undercover prison inspector, and he escaped from the prison there. And then uh, he was recaptured in New York on his way to Brazil. It's easy to be fooled by appearances if you're not really checking things out carefully. The scripture says man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Now let's take a look at the uh, ruse of the Gibeonites. The word on Israel was getting around Canaan. Israel was taking the place by storm. And some of the people in the city-states who had formerly been enemies of one another were getting themselves together into a coalition to see if they couldn't stop Joshua and the Israelites. So Joshua 9, and beginning in verse 1, it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of Jordan, that would have been the west side, in the hills and the lowlands and all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel in one accord. Now, as the Amorite coalition were laying their battle plans, there were some people who began to recognize the truth. The people in the little city of Gideon, Gibeon and three other cities, according to verse 17. And they had heard what happened to, to the city of Jericho. And nobody knew exactly what happened, but they guessed that the Hebrew God must be a powerful God. So they gave up the idea that they could resist Israel, and that's where they concoct this trick that they want to play on Joshua because they were familiar with what Moses had said. I don't know how they knew about that, but perhaps they had a spy at Ebal when they were reading the curse, you remember, from last time. At any rate, word gets around. So if you're in your Bible, go to verse 3, and we're going to spin through there pretty quickly on down to verse 15. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out, torn, and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet, and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and said to him, the men of Israel, We've come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? Now, isn't that something? Joshua and the leaders of Israel suspected that these men were lying. But they didn't check out the right source. They started looking at appearances. Verse 8, They said to Joshua, We are your servants. Joshua said to them, Who are you? And what, where do you come from? Now here's their answer in verse 9 as to why they came up with this business in the first place. They said to him, From a distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites which were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. 
Notice they didn't mention Jericho and Ai because then they would have known that they must have been pretty close at hand. Verse 11, So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. Now there's the ruse. Here comes the reasoning. How would you have reasoned with these people? Skipping to verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions and did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. They swore to them that they would be safe, that they weren't going to do anything to them because they said they had come from a land that was far away that Moses hadn't told them was under the ban. So according to Francis Schaeffer, in his book, a better translation of that Hebrew phrase, the men took some of their provisions, would be they received the men by reason of their food. And I don't think they took some of the provisions and tasted them or anything like that, but when they saw the bread that was dry and crumbly and obviously very old, then they just clicked into their logical thought pattern and thought, hey, these guys are telling the truth. It looks like they've come from a long way. Now, the Gibeonites were pretty good in their disguise because they knew their lives depended on making this thing look right. Do you remember at Jericho, after Jericho, we saw prayerlessness, we saw presumption, and we saw passion, uh, at least uh, the desire, the strong desire to have something that was forbidden on Achan's part. Now, it looks like we're going over some of the same old problems again. Do you ever face the same problems again and again? Well, what are we going to do here? Maybe Israel had not yet realized that they were in war. It doesn't seem that our president realizes that we're in a war against Islamic extremists. Do we realize that we are in a spiritual war and the stakes are high? The stakes are the souls of men, including our own. Let's take a long look at history. And if you do, you see that human reasoning is often deficient. Now, we're not saying take your brains and throw them out the window. The logical thought process is the way God wants us to think. If something is true, its opposite is false. But when I start reasoning things out according to human nature, oftentimes I make mistakes. Think about this. Human reasoning said that Noah was a fool to work on a large boat for 120 years when they'd never even seen rain before. Human reasoning said Abraham must have been dreaming if he thought he was going to have a son when he was 100 years old and his wife was well past the childbearing years. Human reasoning would have said that anyone would be a fool to have thought that Joseph's brothers, who hated him, 
whatever bow down to him with their faces down on the ground pleading with him. And even if they didn't know that Joseph had any brothers, that a slave could have become prime minister of Egypt. You just wouldn't think that according to human reason. Or that Moses, a son of slaves with all his disadvantages, would have become one of the greatest leaders the world had ever known. Well, human reasoning said that Jericho was an impregnable fortress and a bunch of people marching around tooting their horns and finally shouting couldn't have done anything to damage a place like that. And then human reasoning would say that Gideon, Gideon could never defeat 135,000 Midianites in the middle of the night with only 300 guys and some torches, some clay pots, and some ram's horns. You just couldn't do it. And then there was David, a common shepherd boy, who conquered a nine and a half foot giant who had been a warrior since the days of his youth. It just couldn't be. Forget it. Elizabeth and Zachariah could, no, could by no means have a son when they were that age. And Elizabeth's cousin Mary, just a young girl, bare the Messiah, who's going to be the Savior of the world. You just couldn't believe it unless you believe the way God wants us to believe. Well, human reasoning would say that a 12-year-old in the temple could not confound the doctors and philosophers of the law. They would say there was no way that Jesus, a former carpenter and itinerant preacher, in just three short years could begin a new worldwide international ministry and church that would carry on even until today. Human reasoning would say that a bunch of unlearned, unqualified, common men a bunch of fishermen and a tax collector could turn the world upside down with their teaching and their preaching. It just couldn't happen. Human reasoning would say that no one who had been beaten nearly to death, mutilated, hung up on a cross for the better part of the day, then put in a cold, dank rock tomb for the better part of three days, could pop out of there on Sunday morning looking like a guy who had just had a vacation at the health spa. It just couldn't be. And then finally, human reasoning would say that it's completely impossible for the New Testament church to overcome the mighty Roman Empire in just three centuries and still be thriving 2,000 years later even today. So many times, human reasoning would tell us something exactly opposite of what God is doing or what God wants to do. Now, what does human reasoning say to us today? Let me tell you what it says. It says, we don't need to pray about this. This is so obvious that any fool would know what to do. And that's just that little voice in the back of my head saying that. And if I'm not careful, I might listen to it. Well, I do know what a fool would do. A fool would trust in his own heart. But whoso walks wisely would be delivered. Now, a carnal person trusts in his own heart and he trusts in human reasoning. That, that's all he would know to trust in. Because a person who is the natural man is not going to have trust in God. Oh, he might get in some tight place and start calling upon God. But most of the time, he's going to be trusting in his own heart, in his own depiction of the problem and the solution as to how to work it out. Now we have a problem here. 
because God tells us what lurks in the hearts of men. Even on occasion in the heart of a man like King David. Mark seven twenty one. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. Yes, David got that one. Adulteries. Yep, he scored there. Fornications, murders. Yeah, he had the guy murdered. Theft, stole his wife. Covetousness, that's what started it all. Wickedness, deceit. Yep, tried to get Uriah, uh, Uriah to come home and pretend like it was his child. Lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, thinking he can get away with that scheme, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. So here's a question. Can a Christian be carnal? Can a Christian be carnal? Yes, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. A certain kind of Christian. And that is a baby Christian. 1 Corinthians 3, one. And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as spiritual people, as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babies in Christ. That would be an infant. Has your mother ever said to you, stop acting like a baby? Well, how does a baby act? A baby demands action from others or he will howl. Now, some people grow old, but they never grow up. And they just seem to continue to act like babies. But I don't think that's going to work in the Christian life because Paul goes on. 1 Corinthians 3, 3 and 4, For you are still carnal, for where there is strife and envy and divisions among you, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? For one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Now, here's the question. How long can you remain a baby? I've talked to Caroline for some time, and she tells me I'm not a baby. Three years old now, but this was a long time ago. I'm not a baby. How long can you remain a baby? Well, I don't think too long. How long can a person act like a baby? Forever and ever, I suppose. Is there any such thing as a carnal Christian? Well, here in Corinth, Paul is writing to the Corinthian Christians. We have some baby Christians still acting in a carnal way. Carnal, what does that mean? Sarkikos, sarkikos means sensual. Not necessarily sexual, but including that. It means controlled by the appetites and governed by human nature instead of by the Spirit of God. It's that which appeals to the senses, the desire for things we see, the longings for the things that the world has to offer. Fame and fortune and friends at any price and fun and flattery and the boastful pride of life. The world, I'm talking about the world system that is opposed to Christ. That would be what a carnal person thinks about and what's in his heart. So here's my understanding on the so-called carnal Christian. He or she is either a baby Christian or they're in danger of being no Christian at all. And here's the reason I would say that. Romans 8, 6, and 7. Now listen carefully because we've got to put this together. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. 
For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Now we all have our carnal moments, don't we? Where we're in a little episode of backsliding or acting childish or selfish or whatever it might be. But I'm talking about a trend of life. What is the trend of your life? Is the trend of your life toward backsliding, back and forth, back and forth? Or is the trend of your life moving toward Christ? Because the Christian life is moving toward Christ. The carnal life is moving toward the world. You're either going one way or you're going the other. Now, if you find yourself thinking the way the world thinks most of the time, it might be that you don't have the Spirit dwelling within. Christ and Paul, others in the New Testament, are careful to warn us to examine ourselves and see if we're on the team. Now, that's a dangerous thinking that I can just claim to be a baby Christian and, yeah, I know I've got some problems, but it's just the way I am. And, oh yeah, I believe. I believe. That's a dangerous way of thinking, but that's the way the world wants us to think. It's kind of a have your cake and eat it too mentality. I can have the best of what the world offers here, and then when I die, I'll have the best of what God has for me in heaven. That is a very dangerous way to think. Here's what Alan Redpath has to say, his book on Joshua. The whole trouble with many Christians today is that they're only playing at being Christian. They have never really gone in for a holy, dynamic Christian life because they're afraid to pay the price. I tremble in my own soul at the shock many will get when they face our Lord and discover that the beliefs they've cherished, the doctrines they've embraced, the Bible they've said they believed have landed them in hell because their beliefs have never become action, the Bible has never become practice, and their lives have never been made holy. End of quote. That's pretty harsh words, isn't it? Check ourselves out. Now is the time. Hebrews 12:19. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Well, here's the way to avoid being tricked by human reasoning and carnal thinking. Now, we're bombarded with carnal thinking all day long. The internet, the media, the television, uh, in the workplace. Most people think the way the world thinks. Many Christians think the way the world thinks. But here's how we can avoid that. Inquire of the Lord often instead of inquiring of the world or of your own heart. Now, I, don't, I never think, uh, you know, I'm getting ready to inquire of the world. Let me see what the Internet says here. We don't ever say that. We just start thinking al along a certain line. And if I'm not careful, my heart is talking to me and my heart is telling me something that the Bible tells me is not true or tells me many times just the opposite. I mean, my heart may be telling me that, man, you're in trouble. Your heart should be broken right now. But the Scripture tells me in Christ there is hope. I don't have to go on with a broken heart no matter why my heart may be broken. God can repair that as I look to Him. Here in the Old Testament is an example of a guy guilty of carnal thinking. So Saul 
died for his transgression which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not. And also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it, and inquired not of the Lord. Therefore he slew him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Saul had a trend of carnality in his life. He offered the sacrifice at Gilgal without waiting for Samuel to arrive. He disobeyed the Lord concerning destruction of the Amalekites and then lied about it. He tried to murder David on numerous occasions. He did have 85 priests and their families killed at the city of Nob. And then he consulted the witch at Endor. But he got more than he bargained for when the spirit of Samuel came up and told him he would be dead the next day. What a tragic life. Because God told Saul at the beginning that if he would follow him and be obedient, he would work through Saul. But Saul had the wrong kind of heart, it seemed to me. By contrast, Joshua was a great man of faith. But he had some temporary lapses, especially we're seeing when they didn't pray. You remember they didn't pray before Ai. And now they're not praying before the Gibeonites seeking counsel at the mouth of the Lord. Now we talked about last week the difficulty of reclaiming lost ground. Here's the way we want to avoid losing the ground to begin with. But keep in mind, the Christian life is a sequence of getting off the path and then getting back on the straight and narrow. But if we find ourselves just wandering off the path and wandering on over out in the field somewhere, we got to check out our heart to see what's really going on there. Seek wisdom from the Lord and stay on the path. That would be the easier way to go. It's not an easy life, the Christian life, but it's easier than trying to come back and reclaim lost ground. Do you have any kind of impossible situation, large or small, in your life now that human reasoning would say, there's no answer to this. I'm going to be unhappy the rest of my life because of what's taking place or what some person did or what somebody said or what the circumstances were. All of those things that we cannot depend upon according to God. According to God in the book of Philippians, you remember? People, circumstances, things, and worry about people, circumstances, things. We can't depend on those things. We have to depend on the Lord and what His Word says. Here is what God tells us to do with regard to these impossible situations. And remember, how does God work? He works progressively over time, most of the time. He can work instantly, but He rarely does. He works progressively and gives us an opportunity to exercise faith for the next step. We can't see where God's going, but He knows where He's going, and He's going to a good place according to Romans 8.28. Here's the key. James chapter 1 and verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But what does the next verse say? But when he asks, he better not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. We ask God for wisdom, but we ask in faith. Make a habit of inquiring at the mouth of the Lord. 
Here's the mouth of the Lord right here in this book. We've got it all, everything we need for life and godliness. No need to be tricked by appearances, even when something seems obvious like it did with the Gibeonites. Well, there's the ruse, there's the reasoning of, of the leadership, the Israel. Now comes the result. And the result, we're going to see, is a curse and a blessing. Which would you choose? Three days later, after the confrontation there with the Gibeonites, the Israelites came to a rude awakening. Verse 16. And it came about at the end of three days after they made a covenant with them, after they made a covenant with them, that they heard that they, the Gibeonites, were neighbors, and they were living within their land. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to the cities on the third day, and the cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beareth, Kiriath, Jerem. Now, the Israelite people were very unhappy with their leadership. Do you think they were jealous because of disobedience to God's command? Or do you think they wanted to get some more spoils of war from those cities that they should have been knocking out right there at hand? I think it was probably uh, the latter, uh, knowing these Israelite people. But notice the response of the leadership in verse 19. But the leaders said to the whole congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Now we cannot touch them. An oath taken in the name of the Lord should not be taken lightly. If you're a young person and you're going to be married someday, remember that an oath taken in the name of the Lord is not to be considered lightly and should not be broken. Watch now what God is going to do. Remember why the Gibeonites had appealed for mercy. We come from a distant country because of the name of the Lord your God. For we've heard a report of Him and all He did in Egypt and all He did to the two kings and the Amorites and so forth. Now watch carefully the end result because here's the deal. <clears throat> if you've gotten off track or if you have some difficulty in your life, God can turn curses into blessings. And He likes to do that. And He likes for us to overcome evil with good. So watch what's going to happen here. There it is. Mark that down somewhere. God likes to take a curse and turn it into a blessing. I mean, we'd say it was a great curse for an innocent man to be crucified. The only innocent man there ever was. But God turned that into a tremendous blessing. But see, I have to give up my human reasoning in order to get in on the blessing. Because human reasoning says, no way this can happen. Joshua 9, 22 and 23. Then Joshua called for them, Gibeonites, and spoke with them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are, from, we are very far from you when you are living within our land. Now therefore, you are cursed, and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water, from the, for the house of our God. What do you think? If these people are chopping wood and drawing water for the tabernacle, those thousands of sacrifices are going to be offered at the tabernacle, do you think that would be a blessing to the Israelites? Have you ever chopped wood without a chainsaw, a splitter, and without even a truck? 
I guess it would be a blessing for the Israelites. But someone would say, well, wait a minute, what about the Gibeonites? They're slaves, and that's a curse. Now, that really, that all depends on who your master is. And everyone has someone or something as a master. The Gibeonites would be right in the middle at the tabernacle of the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And that's got to be a good thing for pagan people. So they're doing a little work on the side. At least they get to find out about God. Do you think any of it would rub off on them? I think so from the testimony of Scripture. Abraham, you remember, was told that all nations would be blessed through him. And then we saw Rahab, who was a Gentile prostitute, who saw the light and came into the kingdom of God with the Israelites and even made, it, made her way into the hall of fame of faith over in the New Testament. That is a pretty big deal. So here we have the Gibeonites, a bunch of bald-faced liars who don't mind just telling a tall tale without any compunction, no conscience or anything. And their testimony sounded very similar to Rahab's testimony. Check this out. Here's Rahab, chapter 2, back in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. That was Rahab speaking. Now it's interesting. Joshua 9, 9 and 10. Same verses, 9 and 10. And here are the Gibeonites speaking. And they said to him, Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all he did in Egypt, and all he did the two kings of the Amorites which were beyond the Jordan. That's the Gibeonites speaking. Uh, Dr. Schaefer, again, in his commentary says, In God's grace, there seems to be an exact parallel between Rahab and the Gibeonites. Rahab was the only individual that was saved out of Jericho, of course, along with her family. The Gibeonites were the only people saved out of the land of Canaan that were not destroyed. Rahab believed, left Jericho, came among the people of God. The Gibeonites were the only people in the land who even knew about God and who worked at the tabernacle and who were there among the people of God. And the Gibeonites flowed all the way on down through Jewish history until the time we're studying about at 11 o'clock, the time of Nehemiah. See what happened here. When the land was divided, Gibeon was located in the territory of Benjamin. But the town of Gibeon was given to the line of Aaron. And that's where the priests were located. And that became the hub of God's activity through the years in Israel. 400 years later, David set up the tabernacle there at Gibeon with the altar and the priests. One of David's mighty men, Ishmaiah, was a Gibeonite. When Solomon was crowned king, he went to the city of Gibeon 
and offered a thousand sacrifices, burnt offerings there. Perhaps he knew he could get some help hauling some wood and water for that many sacrifices. I don't know. It was at Gibeon that the Lord appeared to Solomon to ask him what he thought he would need for his coming reign as king. And then it was uh, Gibeon 500 years uh, before the time of Christ where Ezra and Zerubbabel came back from the exile in Egypt. And as we look at the list of the genealogies, there were some Gibeonites who came back with the exiles. And that was significant because some of the people who even claimed to be Jews couldn't find their name on the registry and they didn't get in. But the Gibeonites did. And then during the time of Nehemiah, we find the Gibeonites rebuilding a section of the wall right along with the Jewish exiles. God can turn curses into blessings. It may take Him some time to do that, but we've got to have a multi-generational perspective on life. What's God going to do in the lives of your children and grandchildren? Well, it depends in part on what you do because God uses means and we want to pass down a heritage of godliness. Can anybody think of another pagan city who was saved from judgment at the last moment? Nineveh. Exactly right. Even in the Old Testament, God is going to the Gentiles and Jonah comes and preaches and Nineveh repents. At least for a period of time, God is a merciful God. Well, in the Charleston, South Carolina magazine, we see the rest of the story. The amazing thing was that Frank Abagnale only served a little over six years for all the crimes he had committed all those years. And the reason was the federal government by this time had such great respect for him. Oh, they didn't respect his dishonesty, but they respected his ability to help them figure out ways that other people were trying to beat the system and uh, dupe people in these dishonest rackets. So they released him from prison on the condition that he would help the FBI to solve and prevent crimes committed by fraud and by scam artists. Bankers and businessmen had great respect for the guy, not because he bilked them out of millions of dollars, but because he could advise them on fraud detection and how to avoid it. So he opened up a consulting firm, became a millionaire, and uh, became, in a sense, a guy that everybody looked to to figure out the ways to steer clear of the very tricks that he had used to deceive people through the years. The uh, article said Frank Abagnale eventually paid back every dollar that he cheated the banks out of. He testified that he never swindled an individual or someone who might lose their job because of his con game. He only built large institutions. I don't think that'll get him in heaven. He said, I never had pride that I got away with this. There was no real satisfaction in walking out of the bank or situation when I deceived someone. If anything, I felt guilt, he confesses. I always knew I was wrong and that I wouldn't get caught. Toward the end, I almost wanted to get caught. It was a very, very lonely way for a teenage boy to live. He looked about 10 years older than he actually was, and that was part of his disguise. A life of sin, uh, young people, might look glamorous, but in the end, it turns to a curse. Now, what is our conclusion? 
inquiring of the Lord keeps us from being fooled into compromising with the enemy. And inquiring of the Lord often keeps us from slipping over into carnal thinking and thinking the way of the world. I'm not talking about some great wickedness that you're going to go out and blow up somebody's house or something like that. I'm just talking about what the world says. The world says, hey, you can watch this movie and uh, just plug your ears up whenever they take the Lord's name in vain or whatever it may be. Or just close your eyes for the bad scenes. And it's really not going to be a problem. Well, it might be a problem if your six-year-old son walks in. When we're fooled and we fail, God can turn the curse of sin into a blessing as we repent and as we follow Him. And finally, a reminder, the Christian life is characterized by a progression of new beginnings, a series of fresh starts. It's the resurrection. And as we get off track, we need to recognize that. You see, if we inquire of the Lord, He'll help us to see where we have gotten off track, especially if we're in the Word. So we're always talking about the Word and prayer and the ungrieved ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts so He can show us those things. So there it is. Compromise in the camp. We don't want any compromise in our camp. And here's a man with a question right here. Comment, really. Uh, recall back to the young Christian being accused of being a Lordship Salvation person. Not knowing what that was. Uh, it was a majority. And it was not a term of endearment. Who would want you for the Lord to be the Lord of your life? Uh-oh. Yeah. So I, I inquired as to, uh, I didn't think this elder knew what he's talking about before. So I inquired and read, and there was a range, I don't know if it stopped now, because I'm no longer pursuing that issue, but there was a rage going on that involved carnality in the church. Right. Carnal Christian versus Lordship Salvation. Yes. The center of which was Dallas Theological Seminary and John MacArthur. Yes. I remember that. Claiming a Christian is a sweet spring, and from that sweet spring should flow sweet water. Yeah, at least most of the time. Yeah, at least most of the, that's right. That's correct. And yet, out of Dallas Theological Seminary was this idea, you can be a Christian and not know you're a Christian, and so behave carnally. And I think others, you and I have talked how from that kind of thinking springs other worse things that you can actually have sin, it's okay. Yes. And behave in such ways, and I asked the elders that left that church if he thought it was possible to be a Christian and not know because that's the only way you could be a carnal Christian. Otherwise, you would be convicted by the Holy Spirit. He pondered that pregnant pause and said, yes, I do. I said, interesting. He said, the Lord is a jealous God. And he's not jealous for the things that we have or the things that he might give us, but he's jealous for his own righteousness infused in us through his spirit. So how could you not know if it, from a jealous God that you belong to him? And he used the example of two people in the church who as young people must have always been Christians as they could never think of when they were converted. So therefore, they must be Christians and not know it. That was the theological basis of this era. That's a good basis. <laughs> Not the scriptures, <laughs> Not the scriptures. And from the DTSs of 
Yeah, I don't think everybody that came out of there would follow that line of reading. And the logical extension of that would be that everybody's a Christian, and we just need to send the missionaries to tell them that a loving God has already welcomed them into the game. Mark? Well, I think that there's another significant school of thought about Lordship salvation. And John Piper wrote an article a number of years ago titled, I think, The So-Called Lordship Salvation. Mm -hmm. And his thesis, his problem with it is the, I guess, the catchphrase, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And that leads to the problem of perfectionism. That is, people who teach that you're really not a Christian unless you achieve a greater degree of perfection. So, yes. so it's kind of like the idea you need to clean yourself up before you come to God. Or another idea that comes out of the Lordship salvation, another problem with it is the idea that if you backslide or fall, you're, you're not a Christian. You're probably not a Christian. And so, and so we need to have the solid rock of our salvation as Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross and not, and not the degree to which we can accomplish perfection in following Him in this life. And it is important to that He be our Lord and that and that we do strive for holiness. But it's also a fact, I think, through the Scripture that we are not going to achieve perfect holiness in our own lives here. That we constantly have to go to God with confession, with repentance, with guidance. He has to guide us like a shepherd guides us so that so that when we stray or when we go aside, when we're not thinking right, he brings us back. And so I think that it's deeper than just a matter of, um, well, I think I've said enough. Did <laughs> everybody hear that? That is exactly the reason we're studying the book of Joshua. That guy was making mistakes all the time. But he was God's man. And God said, I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will never leave you or forsake you. And you will conquer this land with my people. But we see that Joshua, the great man of God, is making mistakes and getting off track. And those mistakes bear consequences. But God takes his mistakes like he takes our mistakes and uses those things for good as he brings good out of evil. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a merciful God. And we thank you that our perfection is found in Christ's perfect obedience to the law. We know that we could never attain to anything like that. But we do want to have a heart of love so that we love you and we follow you and we obey your commands. And we thank you that when we sin, as we have talked about many times, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, help us to examine our hearts in the light of Scripture. Help us to examine everything that is 
said, everything that is given in every message, in every study that we do by the Scriptures, because we know that's the standard that you have given us. We thank you for these men of the Old Testament and women who lived a life of faith in spite of many times getting off track, but whom you blessed and whom you've set as an example for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for our sin, and guide us now as we come to worship you. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.